so today, as we come to our text in Luke chapter 7, we need to ask ourselves a, a, a little question. If somebody was making a silent movie of your life, a silent movie of your life, no words, no verbal communication, what or who or whom would they say you love most? Silent movie, just watching your interactions, your emotions, your expressions, your nonverbals. Who or what would people say you love most? Charlie Chaplin, the famous silent movie actor, said that the silent picture, first of all, is a universal means of expression. Talking pictures necessarily have a limited field. They are held down to a particular tongues of particular races. What Chaplin is communicating is that there's something about the human experience, the human emotion and nonverbals that can communicate in a broad sense. Even with people in languages we don't share, we can communicate something of the deepest aspects of our hearts with nonverbals through a silent movie. And love in particular might come out in those kinds of things as well. Love is a unique, has a unique human property to it. It's intensely emotional. It's thoughtful, serious. It can be spontaneous at times, but it's intentional. So how, how do we assess love then without words? How would you assess love without words? Many of us might be familiar with Gary Chaplin, or Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. He advocates that all of us, at some level, experience either give or receive love in, in different uh, measures, in different kinds or currencies, um, so to speak. And most of those, four of the five, have nothing to do with words. Other than words of affirmations, there's gifts, acts of service, physical touch, quality time. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need to say words in our context. Gentlemen, I'm looking at you, okay? Just because you said, I love you once, doesn't mean you don't need to say it again, okay? But, but we experience and receive love in different ways, oftentimes without even having to communicate it. So if it was just those criteria from the five love, five love languages, except for words of affirmation, what or who would people say you love the most? See, in our text in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, it begins with a silent story. A silent story. And the actions of these participants reveal who they love. As these people interact with Jesus, their signs of affection indicate who they believe Jesus is. And now what's remarkable about this, though, is that he doesn't leave these silent actions to themselves. No, he actually provides some theological commentary. And in that theological commentary, Jesus proves his identity. So turn to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, one of our hosts will gladly provide one for you. Luke is the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about two-thirds or so the way through your Bible. We'll be in uh, chapter 7. In verse 36. So as soon as you turn there, go ahead and stand and I'll read this for us and honor the word of God. You might wonder, why do we do that? Why do we stand? Well, sometimes when we stand to read the word of God, it's a unique reminder that we're hearing from the Lord. That as we hear the word read, we are hearing directly from God. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, 
weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with the ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we walk through first the context, then the theological commentary, and then the identity question, we'll see that our central idea today, if you're following on your worship program, our central idea is this, experiencing the forgiveness of Christ fuels our love for Christ. Experiencing the forgiveness of Christ fuels our love for Christ. Let me ask this question, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? So first, let's begin with the context. Silent actions that make loud statements. Silent actions that make loud statements. The early parts of this story require us to spend time exploring a a variety of cultural elements that are foreign to our contemporary culture and society. First, we need to consider the characters and the setting. The first character we see is one of the Pharisees. Later in verse 40, it tells us that his name is Simon. Simon is a Pharisee, meaning that he's part of the most influential religious group of Jesus' time. The Pharisees were moral and religious conservatives. They were concerned with keeping the law of Moses and interpreting the Bible literally. They were also social conservatives and believed in moral uprightness that was part of the conclusion of their theological convictions. See, these were people who would advocate for personal responsibility and theological conservatism. Amen for most of us here. And they generally had their life together. So Simon, this Pharisee, invited Jesus over for a meal. In a culture like this, hospitality was extremely important. So Simon, the Pharisee, invites Jesus, the traveling teacher, and possibly the prophet, over for dinner. In verse 36, it says that Jesus took his place at 
a table. Now, we're not exactly sure where Jesus would have sat in that culture. Again, you might have had the, the guest of honor at a place closer to the host, more maybe at the head of the table. And since Jesus and Simon interact throughout this, we can assume that Jesus was sitting relatively close to Simon himself, the host. And unlike our dining room tables that might have chairs around, these, they would have lounged or reclined at the table on the floor, likely on their left arm with their feet pointed outward of the circle. This would have had obvious sanitary reasons. But here they are enjoying a first century Middle Eastern barbecue. And verse 37 then introduces us to another person in the story, another character. The next character could not be more opposite to this moral, conservative, respected man. Verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. See, this description leaves much to the imagination. All we know for sure is that she is a woman of that city and is a sinner. We don't know her name ever in this text. And now there is a, a similar story in John chapter 12, but I think these are two different stories. That person there is named and we have clear context, but I think there's, this, these are two different stories here of Jesus and these women. Now it's entirely possible that she may have been known for any number of sins, but most would speculate that she was a prostitute or in some kind of illicit or adulterous relationship. So when Luke describes her as just a woman of, a city, of the city and a sinner, it's very likely that he's simply using a PG description for an R-rated sin. Nevertheless, she shows up at this party when she learns that Jesus will be there. Now, now this is, feels foreign to us, just a random person, uninvited guest, showing up to something they're not invited too. But um, in, in this context, it's not crazy. She wasn't reprimanded for showing up. She was reprimanded or thought ill of for what she did. See, in a collective society like this, different than our suburban developments, it would have been pretty common for this would have felt more like a, a neighborhood public party. You know, it might be one thing if you enjoy smoking meat to have a, a curious neighbor who gets that aroma to say, hey, can, would you mind me trying a bite of that? You know, the curious neighbor, though, at some point gets the drift if you start to have people show up and he's not been invited. He'll, he'll politely or kindly usually just go home. So it might be one thing to be thought about being invited to something, but it's a whole other thing to receive an invitation. And if you haven't received the invitation, you're not invited. However, this woman knows that this is a place that she can show up. She goes, it might have been common for someone to come in and a poor person to be around the perimeter of this gathering and just maybe get a bite of leftovers. Just maybe have some scraps handed to her. This was a public gathering, but she comes because Jesus is there. Now her presence is felt immediately in the text. And her actions here are what become the most radical part of what goes on. She comes and she, she comes over to Jesus with a, an alabaster flask of ointment. This wouldn't have been the common olive oil of the day that someone might have had their head anointed as they, as they walked in and kind of freshen up. No, this would have been something more expensive, important to her. She goes and she stands at Jesus' feet. Remember, on the outside of the gathering, the outside of the circle, and she just begins to weep. 
This is the ugly try of ugly tries. Not just a tear or two coming down, but must have been streaming down her cheeks to wet his feet. She takes her hair and dries them with her own hair. Proceeds to take that important and expensive ointment to anoint Jesus' feet. Even proceeds to kiss his feet. Again, for us, this is just radical, but it's not just radical for us. It was radical for them as well. Her actions, though, are making loud statements. See, the other character, though, is making loud statements as well. See, the scene shifts back to Simon, the Pharisee, who is close enough to watch this entire interaction. And we can only imagine the tension that must have come over this room. Did everyone just awkwardly look the other way? Were there whispers there? It's like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Did Simon just kind of shift back with his arms across and kind of give a big eye roll to a, a friend nearby? We don't totally know. But what we do know is that Jesus heard clearly what Simon thought he was just thinking silently. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You ever wonder what life would be like? If just your secret thoughts could be live tweeted? You ever wonder if Alexa was really listening? Not just to what you say out loud, but to what you were thinking in your mind? Can you imagine that put down or that judgmental thought that you just you just thought to yourself, you didn't even you didn't even say it to a friend, you didn't say it to a spouse. But what if the person you said that about actually heard it? See, since Jesus didn't respond with some kind of physical gag reflex, Simon concluded that Jesus could not be a prophet. He could not be this special man of God because a real man of God, a real prophet would know exactly the kind of person who was touching him. But of course, Jesus is more than a prophet. So Luke, what Luke knows and what we know through reading this is that Jesus is, is seeing something even more important. He's reading all this in mind. So these silent actions have made loud statements, but we don't leave it just at that. See, Jesus goes on to provide some theological commentary. And in this commentary, he speaks remarkable, true theology. The theological point here is that those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who are forgiven much, love much. See, after Jesus hears what Simon thinks he's just thinking silently, verse 40 makes it seem like Jesus responds as part of the conversation. In response to Simon's self-righteous and judgmental thoughts, Jesus tells a little parable. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon answered respectfully, say it, teacher. See, like in other places, Jesus is the master teacher. And he has a way of using simple parables to illustrate an important point. He doesn't say these parables just to draw the crowd or to be funny. No, he always has a point in the parables that he's speaking. In, in verse 41, he introduces this 
story. He says, Jesus, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Now that would be about 18 or 20 months of an average wage. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. So approximately two months or so of wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one will love him more? See, the parable is pretty basic. It's actually pretty easy to understand. There's two debtors, both with different debts, but they're both forgiven. So the question here is, well, which of those would love him more? Now, again, this is difficult to put in uh, in our modern um, financial terms, but to hang with me for a little bit. The median American wage right now, if you a quick Google search, will say it's around $54,000 which means about 18 or 20 months of a wage would be about $90,000, a significant amount. The other, just 50 denarii, would equate to two months of wages, which would be closer to about $9,000. Now, regardless as to whether debt forgiveness is a good idea or not, if you receive this kind of forgiveness, you would be excited. If you got nine grand forgiven, that would be great, but it wouldn't quite change your life. $90,000, on the other hand, is pretty significant. You would rejoice. You would have wonderful, amazing joy to have all of that debt forgiven. It would respond in love. So Jesus asked, which one will love him more? And Simon responded with the obvious. And he's either too arrogant or just a little bit nervous of whether or not this is a trick question. So So he says, I suppose the one who had been forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus answered, you have judged rightly. Yeah, no kidding. But the tension though in the story, now is where the tension in the story begins to accelerate. So far, it seems that Jesus was looking right at Simon and having this conversation, telling this parable. But notice in verse 44, where Jesus begins to look. Then turning toward the woman, He said to Simon. Notice that. This is an important piece. So far he's looking right at Simon, but now he's speaking to Simon, but he's looking at this woman. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus draws attention to the obvious. Everybody saw this woman. But he says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. See, the actions of Simon and this woman could not have been more opposite. Jesus may have been sitting as a guest of honor, but he had been denied even basic courtesies of a guest. One commentator clarifies that Simon failed to do what was expected as a host, confirming that he was skeptical and cautious about welcoming Jesus. Simon had denied basic hospitality. The sinful woman, on the other hand, again, her her actions could not be more opposite. I, I just, again, we have to use our imaginations a little bit here. She walks in and she remember she would have been on the perimeter. Jesus' feet would have been out toward the perimeter of this gathering. Is it possible that she was looking to find Jesus and then just so happened to say, his feet haven't been cleaned? 
And then just overcome with emotion in the moment to say, so she used everything that she had? Just her own tears and her expensive ointment? Because in her mind, she's saying, this man deserves not just the basic courtesy of hospitality, but everything. Jesus drew attention to the obvious, but then he explained the significance of their actions. In verse 47, he makes this remarkable theological statement. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he says to her, so notice, he's been looking at her, but speaking to Simon. But now he looks at her and speaks to her, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus is saying that her love is the result of the fact that she had been forgiven. Her love did not earn forgiveness. No, it was a response. We might read the phrase in verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. That's the ESV. And wrongly conclude that the forgiveness is the result of her love. But there are several reasons that cannot be the right interpretation. First, it doesn't make sense of the parable. See, the moneylender simply forgives the debt of those who owed him. And then they respond in love. Secondly, the the way Jesus is using the preposition for is to show that her love is evidence of her forgiveness, not the grounds. See, we use words like for or because in similar ways as well. We, we could be walking around Ohio Stadium, the horseshoe in the fall, and not be at the game. But if we were just out there and heard a loud cheer, we might say, the Buckeyes must have scored, for I heard a loud cheer. We would recognize that the cheer was in response to something that happened, not vice versa. What's most important for us to see is to be clear, this woman's love was in response to her forgiveness. Her sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much, as the CSB says. So, brothers and sisters, how connected, how connected is your love for Jesus with your recognition of your forgiveness of sins? How connected is your love for Jesus with your recognition of your forgiveness of sins? See, there's two responses here to Christ. Both of these characters allow us to kind of see ourselves. Which one are we is how we're supposed to read this. And all of this is a measure of love. All this is a measure of love. First, let's see ourselves in Simon the Pharisee. While we don't know much about him besides what we see here, Simon represents self-righteousness. Now, we shouldn't press the parable too far. When Jesus says, he who is forgiven little loves little, he is not saying that Simon is genuinely forgiven. No, his lack of forgiveness is revealed in his lack of love. His attitude is that he doesn't need much forgiveness because he had his life put together. He's moral. He's respected, probably even wealthy. On the outside, this man looks great. But in his self-righteousness, he thinks he can save himself and therefore he doesn't need much repentance. 
Friend, could it be that your lack of love for God is because you think you can save yourself? Do you think you really don't need much saving? Are you like an adult standing in a kiddie pool? A lifeguard throws you a preserver and you just simply respond, thanks, but I think I'm good. In your self-righteousness, are you saying, look at what I've done. Look at what I built. Look at what I've accomplished. I love me some me. See, for those who think they can save themselves, all that results in is self-love. All that results in is the exaltation of the self as opposed to God. If you can save yourself, then it's likely that you simply love yourself more than anyone else. Proverbs 26, verse 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. See, friends, the only way that we can truly love God is if the gospel is a gospel of grace and not of works. If salvation is an achievement that I earn instead of something I receive, then there's no reason for us to love God. That simply promotes self-love. Because then we're able to say, I did something. I contributed. I've made this. Aren't I great? See, this can be a danger in a more established, mature church. We know a lot. We read a lot. We think about all the personal growth and personal responsibility. And sometimes we can forget that salvation is a gift I receive, not a work that I achieve. So you might be here today or be listening to this and think about all the accomplishments of your life. But if you're honest, that big house you have is just a bigger place to fight with your family. The resources that you have that you'll leave when you die are just more things for your family to argue about when you're gone. All of your possessions could be just rusty relics of a wasted life. See, self-salvation won't cut it. The wages of sin is death. And if you don't love God, chances are you simply think you can save yourself. And instead of loving God, you only love yourself. The other person we should see in this text is this woman. See, unlike the person who trusts in themselves is the person who's totally aware of their sin and is terrified of it. This person is not just struggling to stay above water. This person is already drowned and they recognize it. Friends, do you fear the result of your many sins? How will you pay such a debt? How costly our sins are to a holy and righteous God. Even if we could pay back just one sin, what about the dozen that fill its place? Our sins in word, thought, and deed are a line of credit that we cannot be repay. 
The compound interest on our sin is impossible to get ahead of. If you feel inflation at the grocery store and the gas pump, you have no idea the cost of sin against a righteous God. Do we feel like the sinful woman who's in complete recognition of all that we've done and all that we do not deserve from that holy God? But brothers and sisters, our many sins can be forgiven because Christ has paid the debt. In such wondrous grace and love, Jesus has paid the full extent of the debt we owe because of our sins. See, the moneylender forgave the outstanding debt, but he still needed to absolve the cost, to take the cost on himself. Jesus is the one who forgives, but he also pays the price that is coming to us. Jesus forgives the debt because he pays it all. So he can look at that woman and say, your sins are forgiven. Can he say that to you? He says later, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, the invitation for us, brothers and sisters, is to have faith in Christ, to be forgiven. There's no way that she responds with saying, here I go, I'll, I'll, I'll do better next time. I, I, I've got this now. If I just become a little bit more like this righteous Pharisee, well, then I'll have it. No. She throws herself completely at the mercy, at the grace of Christ. And she can respond in love for Christ because she recognizes the depths of her forgiveness. Because the gospel is not a gospel of works, but a gospel of full grace. And because it's a gospel of grace... We can respond in total love and commitment for Christ. See, Jesus is not just after our intellect, as philosopher James Smith says. He's not just here to, to give us new information. No, he's here to captivate our hearts and our loves, that we would love him with full abandon, that we would love him more than self, that we would love him more than anything else in this world because he saved us because of his love alone. Do you love Jesus? See, loving and knowing are connected, but to know that Jesus can forgive and to trust him in salvation alone, for salvation alone and not to respond in love is a total disconnect. That is a miswiring of the house that will result in a total fire. No, we love Jesus because he's forgiven. See, again, in the, in the silent movie of your life, who or what will people say you love most? Will they, will they say you love, even you've turned good things into ultimate things, that you love things like leisure, even family, weekend activities, work, money, relationships? Do you love them more than Christ? One way to assess that question in our lives is to ask ourselves, what are we willing to adjust for? What are we willing to adjust for? See, that, that reveals priorities. That reveals loves. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, is that worth it no matter the cost? Because Jesus is more lovely than anything else. 
how frequently with things of the gospel, with things of Christ, with the relationships in our church, how often do we adjust those things for other things? How quickly are we to say it's just too inconvenient? This throws off my schedule. Do we ever adjust for Christ? Because he's the most lovely person. See, those who are forgiven much, love much. Experiencing the forgiveness of Christ fuels our love for Christ. Do you see how much you've been forgiven? Can you all remember your testimony of trusting Jesus? Are you able to sing our sins? They are many, but his mercy is more. Think of the love of which he demonstrates for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us. He saved us not according to works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, this woman can love Because she was saved by the gospel of grace. Can you? See, if you've got Christianity, you have Christianity all wrong if it's not a gospel of grace. If it's not something that I do, but it's something that Jesus has done for me. And then you can respond with wonderful, amazing love because you've been forgiven much. See, in an established church like ours, for many of us who have walked with Christ a long time, we need to always remind ourselves of the glory and good news of the gospel. That it is not just the diving board, it is the pool in which we swim. It is the glory of all of our existence that Jesus would save us by his grace alone. So it's natural that we respond in love because we've been forgiven much. Jesus teaches this wonderful and rich theological truth that those who are forgiven much love much. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the whole rest of the New Testament answers that question. And the history of the Reformational Church stands on those truths. But this theology is only important because of the person who teaches it. And that's our final point. See, we see an identity question Jesus can say all that he said so far, but that really is meaningless unless his identity, unless his authority is established in something far greater. So the identity thing here, the identity question, the identity point is that Jesus is the only one able to forgive your sin. Jesus is the only one able to forgive your sin. See, so far in the dialogue, Jesus had been looking at the woman, but talking to Simon. In verse 48, he changes his gaze again to look at the woman and say, your sins have been forgiven. Now, up to this point, Jesus had been simply describing forgiveness. But now he puts an exclamation point on it when he says your sins. He declares it. Your sins are forgiven, which causes all the rest of the people there to say, who is this that forgives sins? See, the similar thing came up in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus had healed the paralytic man. 
before he healed him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And those who are listening there were saying, who is this that forgives sins? Who is this who utters blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And friends, that's precisely the point. Who is Jesus? He is God with the authority to forgive your sin. See, Jesus could not forgive a sin committed to somebody else. See, this woman comes in and had, we have no idea. It doesn't look like she had for, uh, committed any kind of personal sin against the person Jesus. So for him to declare her sins forgiven would be awkward. But if Jesus is God, then every sin anyone has ever committed is primarily offense to him. So when he forgives sins, he is forgiving personal offenses that we have made to him. He takes all of the cost. He is the one able to forgive because he is God in the flesh. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, before our sins are a personal offense to anybody else, it's a personal offense to God. And Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, forgives those sins. So that's an invitation for all of us today. The invitation is to receive the same declaration that the sinful woman had on her. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Brothers and sisters, have you repented of your sin? To repent of your sin is to recognize that you are a sinner. That you don't just do bad things and that makes you a sinner. No, you are a sinner and that's why you sin. To come to God, to come to Jesus and to say, I have offended you. I have sinned against you. You alone have I sinned against. Forgive me. I'm sorry. And now I throw myself on the grace of Christ. I bring nothing to the table. I've sinned against you, but now I have faith that through your death and resurrection, you alone have the power to save me. I believe. Have you responded that way to Christ? Today is that day. Stop trusting in yourself. You cannot save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. See, just yesterday I found out a former teacher of mine died suddenly in his sleep. 53, young adult aged kids. These are the moments in life where you have a little gut check. You realize in a few days people are going to gather at his funeral and they're going to talk about the things he loved most. All of us will have that day. Your kids and friends and relationships will gather to talk about who you are, what you've done, and what you loved most. Do you love Jesus? Will they be able to sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. See, as we experience the forgiveness of Christ... We respond with love.
Let's pray. God, we pray that you would plant these truths on our hearts. Well up in us an overwhelming love for you. May we respond with joy as we take up our cross and follow that you are worth it because you, Lord, are of supreme love and treasure. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would grow our affections, that we would recognize how the depths of our depravity, the glories of our forgiveness, and the, the majesty of the love of which we are able to have for you because you have loved us. Remind us, Lord, that the depths of our sin is not where you leave us. But the gospel of grace brings us the whole way home. In Jesus' name, amen.